Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. Today, we are going to look at those mages with the most informal dress code of all. <laughs> I don't think I would do too well at a pagan ritual, to be perfectly honest. I think I'd be the, the guy saying, uh, hey, everybody, you know what's in this season? Pants. But <laughs> laying that aside for just a moment, before we get into this book, Terry, do we have any announcements? Uh, one, I think this is going to be one of our more dadcasty of episodes. <laughs> so certainly excited for that. The only thing is I feel like we should have a party or I should have sent you some cake or something to mark the end of Sorcerer's Crusade. Otherwise, I don't have any announcements for now. You're right. This is the final volume of the 10 books of Sorcerer's Crusade. So I guess we're, we're kind of capping uh, that series today. So that, that should be interesting. But for now, we are looking at Witches and Pagans. This came out in 2001, and there were two people working on it, uh, Rebecca Moss and R. Sabrina Udell, both contributed text to this, and R. Sabrina Udell was the developer for this book. Clocks in at 95 pages, not one of the longest book, but a number of interesting uh, bits here. So, Terry, can you start us off with a walkthrough? Sure, I would be glad to. There is a set of fiction pieces tied to the seasons, and we will discuss that at a later point. But the first other chapter we get is the introduction. But before we do that, another installment in my intermittent series of this book could have been called. And the three alternative titles I have for this is Sorcerer's Crusade. We've really been holding back on in-character description, and this is the last book, so let it rip. The other title I had is it's the last book in the line, so let's just say Ascending Requires Spirit 5. And finally, the third title I have for this book is Lolita. The introduction... For Witches and Pagans starts to talk about what is a pagan anyway, and it tells me I am wrong about what I think a pagan is. So one, we know that this is a Sorcerer's Crusade book because I've been corrected on something the book doesn't know that I believe immediately out of the gate. And the third line of the prelude was, I should be cold, he thought of himself but he was not. And every section of the prelude talks about how cold it is. So between those two things, even though this book was never available in print format, we know that this is a canon sorcerer's crusade text. The definition of pagan that they propose is a follower of pre-Christian nature-based gods of old Europe. And to differentiate between the pagan as defined as basically not a follower of a monotheistic religion of some sort and what we're used to maybe is they use pagan with a capital P perfectly fine. We get a section entitled the pagan heart, which talks about the virtues of being a pagan and how it differs maybe from Christian values. And the values they list are courage, generosity, and honor. I wanted to spend some quality time in being like, yes, uh, generosity completely different from the Christian notion of charity or honor completely different from the Christian notion of piety. We then get a historical note that tells us that in the dark fantastic world that there are more pagans. Awesome. Good. Tell me how this world is different from the from maybe what I might see when I crack open a history book. And the gives us our standard how to use this. And kind of one of the things it sets down 
in the the pagan ways is the fact that there is that not this tie to comfort and convenience and maybe that is part of the reason why these these ways are dying out so one of the things i want to keep my eye open for as i go through the book is does it explain to me that pagan worldview and why they are comfortable throwing off the contrivances comforts and conveniences that may start to come in through the era we get a a note on shame and how it is poisonous to the pagan heart and so on and i assume that's why they're naked all the time and then the rest of the book starts so adam did you have any thoughts on what is one of the longer introductions that we've gotten at least in sorcerer's crusade yeah, it is one of the longer introductions, although you, you covered it quite well. Uh, the Really, the point that stood out to me when reading this was uh, this historical note you mentioned, uh, page 13. Uh, in a lot of the Sorcerer's Crusade books, they, they give us real-world history information, and it's like we're going to, you know, we're hoping you use this to make your stories more authentic. And it was it was interesting here in their historical note, they said, yeah, in the Renaissance era, they're, they're there were so few pagans they weren't even worth mentioning. They they really were gone. But but we think it's a cool part of the setting, so we're just gonna diverge from real world history and say there's there's a bunch of them who are keeping a low profile. And and that's fine. You know, I think uh, my my mage role-playing games can differ from the real world if, if, if it's interesting and, and gives uh, possibilities to my players. I just thought it was interesting that I, I got this notion that the people working on Sorcerer's Crusade feel this this need to have a community of sleepers propping up every mage faction, or else the mage faction can't, you know, hold itself together. And it's interesting to me because as a longtime mage fan in the early editions of mage, there were a lot of mage factions who had no sleeper community propping them up. They just hid in the shadows and they held themselves together in their own way. They would teach their, their beliefs to their new recruits and, and keep it that way. So it's just two different ways to look at it. Do you need a sleeper community to support your mage faction or not? So interesting idea for storytellers to play with. But hey, I'm ready for chapter one. Chapter one is entitled History, and before that, we get a chapter frontispiece, which is a Venn diagram of Richard Kane Ferguson, something that you would find inside of a teenager's trapper keeper, and boobies. And that's kind of the recurring theme of all the chapter front art that we get throughout the rest of the book. It's like someone stole a composition book or a peachy and was just like, okay, what's in here? Oh, this is pretty metal. Let's throw it into the book. The uh, the pencil drawings, I never really liked. They also look slightly distorted, like they were scanned incorrectly. Maybe it would have looked better in an actual print were this book ever available in it, but uh, something that Sorcerer's Crusade does in a few cases once it moves to the art house imprint is kind of have that very preliminary pencil style drawing, which I don't think looks great and just kind of reminds me of a lot of like early D&D clone stuff. Chapter one, as I mentioned, is entitled History, and it just starts off with a straight history, and it says, hey, this departs from the history that has been taught in other places, but here, here's our straight dope on it. And the pure ones existed. They were early beings of energy. They were bored, so they created humans. They realized that humans were dumb, so they taught them things, and they're like, well, you know these dumb things that we created that are less with them than us? Yeah. How about we, uh, you know, boink with them? And they did, and they created the Wick which were their their children. And then they realized, oh wait, these ones aren't really that much better off. So they gave them fire and knowledge of the seasons and a number of other things that were terribly useful because they really hadn't thought out what would happen if you created like naked apes 
to run around in the world. And then the children of the Wick were bored. And again, they boinked with humans and created the Eudina, who became the, the leaders of men, which implied that humans were independently boinking, which is useful because that's a thing you really need to have to perpetuate a species. And it split between those who tended to life and those who tended to spirit, showing that the uh, the dream speakers and the verbena would be tightly intertwined up until... Uh, chapter two where they're like yeah we're the verbena we're really not that good with spirit someone should look into that you're like really that's okay got it they were eventually the wheel turned and they were put down by the follower of the nailed god which makes christianity sound way more metal than i think it is as someone who sat through a lot of intensely boring catholic services as a child theirs was a jealous god who laid low the other god and then the the children of the pure ones the wick and the Eudina went into hiding. Then we get an aside on Lilith and kind of the Bahari heresy or belief set. Two of the authors, uh, Satyrus Fobicato and Rochelle Ro- Udell, worked on a book called The Revelation of the Dark Mother, which was a in-world book for vampire. And it's a neat little book that kind of tells the fall and creation of vampires from uh, Lilith's point of view. And from my understanding, it's it's reasonably well-regarded and kind of interesting. And I may or may not have a copy. I'm not entirely sure. Kind of follows Lilith. And it says that Jehovah was, was firstborn of the pure ones, created Adam and Lilith, Lilith was given fertility and intuition as powers, and Adam was given names and shaping. Adam apparently liked boinking animals, because at the end of the day, this book is very boinkocentric. And one day is like, hey, I've boinked all the animals. What now? I could boink Lilith. And Lilith had none of this. And Adam was not convinced that she had a headache. And when Adam tried to boink Lilith, Lilith is like, nope. I assume correspondence magicked her way out of that and was like, hey, Jehovah. Yeah, Lilith. Well, that was weird. And Jehovah's like, yeah, want to boink? And they did. And they gave birth to all sorts of things, which became sea monsters. I am choosing to very specifically interpret that as they gave birth to the Rokea and Mokole because there being a secret link between the Verbena and were sharks is just something I think Mage needs. After Lilith spends a lot of time with Jehovah and they put a lot of postcards into their little travel binder, Lilith goes, hey, remember that garden I was in? Yeah, probably contains some really interesting knowledge that I could use. Yeah, probably. And Lilith returns to Eden to find Lucifer, the, a fellow pure one, who had given her to be guarding the garden. And Lucifer is like, yo, Lilith. And Lilith is like, yo, Lucifer, nice to see you. And he goes, it's been a while. What have you been up to? I don't know, some stuff. How about you? Guarding this garden. Uh, it's been a bit. How about I give you dominion over the moon and tides? And Lilith is like, that'd be cool. And she waltzes back in. She consumes seven seeds from seven fruits, which sounds like a just remarkably complicated family reunion recipe. I imagine it also contained like very small mar- marshmallows and mandarin oranges. That would be great if like Hawaiian salad went back to the birth of humanity. Anyway, and, and, and consumes wisdom and knowledge from the garden uh, and then tempts Eve, after referring to her as a lesser mortal, not even made of true earth. Now, the thing I, the thing I don't like about this is kind of the very strongly to me embedded misogyny of being like the progenitor of all women is made of lesser material, and it's like I don't. Mm, eh. And then after Lilith tempts her with knowledge and then 
gives it to her, the pure ones converge and the, you have the, the council of pure ones and Lilith and Lucifer are ejected to the unmade lands, but they're still allowed to, to be besties and Jehovah becomes the wandering God and Lucifer descends into madness. And I guess humans just kind of move on from there. There's an interesting thing in trying to square that with the history we had gotten before. And it talks about how this is belief among the uh, awakened Bihari, of which there are three. So good to know that we finally have a mage group that gets a write-up that is smaller than the children of knowledge. We then get an aside on the Hidden Realms, which were supposedly created by Lilith, which uh, fulfills the destiny of all mage editions because it gives us a new origin story for the Verbena Seasonal Realms, which uh, every other edition of Mage so far has, has provided us with. And it says that they're just kind of exactly what you would expect them to be. The Summer Realm is summery. Oh, okay. The winter realm is cold, but not too cold. And there's a very big tree. Oh, okay. Big on that tree thing. Yeah. And then we get a section on noted pagans. We get Sir Garland of Laramie, who renounced the church, set up the Beerwood, and lived there for a century, practicing the old religion in peace and harmony until the Gabrielites are like, hey, stop having fun over there. And he's like, no. And the Gabrielites are like, you need to stop or I'm going to come in with my giant demon slayer sword. And Sir Laramie is like, no. And then there was a, a big fight involving shapeshifters. The next one we get is Talia the Talon, who is not awakened, but commands practical magics. Magic here is spelled with a K, which is normally the diagnostic thing that tells us that it's awakened magic. And it's like, sometimes she could rival the ability of most adepts. I'm like, go on, tell me how. We get a write-up of Stephen Trevenus, which is fascinating because it suggests that Robin Hood and Maid Marian, or the maid is, is it is simply listed, are a pair of souls or avatars or something that repeatedly reincarnate. And that included Guinevere and Lancelot and Abelard and Heloise, or Heloise, I don't know how to pronounce that one, H-E-L-O. I-S-E. We get the tale of Signy Hammervind, the storm witch, who wants to win a contest. And his mom's like, you want to win the contest? He's like, of course I want to win the contest. And she's like, I'm going to poison the guy. And he's like, that's cheating. And then there's a trip to the underworld and he accidentally joins the void seekers and everyone but three people die. And he's like, oh, wait. I've seen things. I could use my powers now to go to the underworld and apologize to that guy that my mom poisoned. And then he tries to do that, but then true love is involved. They fight and they're like, they're battling. And I'm like, cool, but one of them, isn't one of them already dead? Or are we talking about a different guy? I'm very bad at keeping track of some of these plots sometimes. And then there were apocalyptic storms and it, it talked about flame-haired women. And I don't know because it's mage if that's literal or that's just a poetic way of saying someone is like, like redhead. We then get information on the, the Pictic witches uh, and then Lady Nightshade and how uh, she was the awesomest of the Prime Eye. She was the probably the last surviving of the original ones. And we get a thing about Shazar's vision of the future being ruled by demons and mechanical monstrosities, which I thought was Halel's vision, but still. And then we get some information on Eloane, the member of the March of the Nine, who was apparently pivotal in the battle with Tezgul the Insane. And this is where the book kind of went off the rails for me, because we are given the Testament of Loria, which is in the Testament of Antonio, which is in the Testament 
of a Loanay, which is in a grimoire, which is in this game book. And that's just a little too embedded to me. That's a that's that's one too many levels of going deeper. We get information on Aloni's twins and that they're out there in the world and that there's a secret sigil that identifies them. We never get that that sigil. We get the story from a Gabrielite who renounced being a Gabrielite. There's a lot of people renouncing Christianity for like seemingly no reason, which is fine. You can you can do that. That's up to you. But like I don't know, was there something in the air? I don't know. And then then the chapter ends. And the whole of the history chapter I thought was was kind of interesting. Some more contemporary stuff would have been useful, like to know kind of what the state of pagan belief or pagan distribution about Europe was. It's kind of embedded into the rest of it. And then the Alone section is just long and doesn't include a lot. It's about four pages. We don't actually find out what happens to the twins. It's a lot of just kind of flavor. It's not directly usable in a game unless you really want that to be a cornerstone of a chronicle. And then even then, we don't really have enough to actually run with it, in my opinion. A bunch of the other noted pagans are kind of cool. Sir Garland sounds cool. Talia the Talon, okay. The idea that Robin Hood is just kind of this reincarnating avatar, especially if you square this up with the order of reason kind of mythology regarding Stephen Trevenus. So the idea that the person who created two different conventions is also this infinitely recurring entity or something, I think would be kind of BA, but uh, it never really goes anywhere. What did you think, Adam? <laughs> Chapter one had a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, material in there. I just, I just was floored when I saw that yet another mage faction is claiming Robin yep. Hood is their guy. It's like, oh, oh my gosh. It's like, I, I think if, if any of us fans get together and do some like further Sorcerer's Crusade books, I mean, every mage faction has to claim Robin Hood now. It's it's like, it's, it's part of the, it's part of the lore now. <laughs> and and this one is, is especially reaching. I mean, this one is a serious stretch. Lately, I've been reading the ballads uh, about uh, Robin Hood that were out there in the 1400s, which is, you know, right during the Sorcerer's Crusade era. And the, the earliest uh, Robin Hood material anybody has, Robin Hood is hanging out with Friar Tuck. He's having uh, Christian services out in the Greenwood, out in the forest. He's helping poor priests against the uh, rich, corrupt priests. Th- this one is really a stretch. I mean, in the 1400s, trying to convince any group of peasants that, hey, Robin Hood is a pagan. They're like, mm, no, not the, one we, not the one we sing about, dude. So We need to do the big book of Robin Hood, where it's just literally every game faction <laughs> like, yeah, this is the Coppoloi take on why Robin Hood is actually theirs. <laughs> yes. Like, that I want to read more there than anything. Yeah. I'm there for that. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> uh, but getting back to it, um, I know there are a lot of uh, mage fans who were really... Uh, really fans of The Fragile Path, uh, which was a published mage book. It didn't have rules in it, but it did have all this information about the first cabal uh, in the Middle Ages period and Halel, the betrayer, and, and all that kind of stuff. So the, this chapter one, we hear about uh, Halel's children and, and where they are and how you might uh, pull them into your game. A lot of mage fans are, are going to enjoy that, so I guess it was, it was a good idea to do it. I'm not exactly a first cabal fan, so that was, that was not my thing, but for those who like it, I'm glad it's out there. This chapter did supply enough lore to give story hooks to both players and storytellers in their games. And so 
so that was useful. There's not a lot that I think I would pull into my own Sorcerer's Crusade books. I, I think there was some stuff done in the in the older mage books that kind of covers the Verbena lore that I could adapt to the Renaissance era and, and have some fun with. So I don't need to pull out a lot that was actually in this book. But it's good that they supplied that uh, material for people who want to... Uh, want to just stick to the Sorcerer's Crusade books only and and pull their lore from that. So there's some good stuff for them. On to chapter two, all about magic. Chapter two is entitled Knowledge. One of the things this chapter does that I really like is it gives you alternate names for the spheres based on who is using them in a way that I thought was simple and flavorful. So for instance, it says, ah, the sphere of connection in Brittany is known as the sphere of travel or among the Romani, the sphere of fortune is known as the sphere of blood. And I, I thought those were nice. We also tells us that peppered throughout are going to be rituals for unawakened practitioners to use where they may have a variant or lesser version of a rote available to them to use. I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be something that was unique to the verbena or if this was going to be in addition to linear path magic, if that is something that I wanted to use or not, but I, I think it was kind of an interesting suggestion. And then you start reading through and each of the rotes is pretty flavorful in the sense that it gives you a setting, a character, a thing they used it against, a case where somebody used it. But the flip side of that is it's not always obvious what is actually being done because each wrote or spell or what have you at the end of it has a thing that says like what the system is. But to me, I would really want that system box to both say, this is how you roll for it. And this is what it does. In a lot of them, it was kind of suggesting that you had to read the write-up specifically. And you're like, oh, okay, based on this write-up, you're telling me I can use life four to turn a rich noble person into a horse. Does it literally just turn rich people into horses? Or is this like a general thing? Could I turn anyone into a horse? Could I turn them into something that's not a horse? And it just felt me, it felt kind of confused to me in a lot of those cases. Some of the write-ups were, were kind of lengthy and had little stories involved. And, and some people will like that and some people won't. I, I do kind of like the write-ups as stories that I could insert into a game as a witch or a pagan tells tale of something but that's kind of a bit of a lift like for instance the the blood to water wrote indicates that for life that somebody was being bled by leeches and they weren't getting better and then they found that the leeches were just pulling out water and the person's blood had been transformed and i don't know what that does it just says system this is life three effect difficulty seven it, okay <laughs> kind of wasn't enough there for me in some of the cases uh, the other thing that this section suffers from is it has creative interpretations of what the sphere levels can do i mean at this point i probably have three or four different sets of sphere levels running around in my head so i may be not completely remembering things but like, for instance, Fortune 4 is used to curse and Fortune 5 is used to kill someone, which is generally too much. You can kind of do a generic curse, usually with Fortune 3, and harm them with, with Fortune 4. Forces suggest that the difficulty of an effect, one where you kind of sink a castle with a storm, can be reduced by adding additional spheres. We also get the breakdown where those rituals that were 
presented earlier are not actually provided for every sphere or only one is where earlier they were providing two or three. The mind sphere, I, I have frequently talked about how the game has a wide variety of interpretations of difficulty for using the mind sphere. And this one has what I thought was a novel one, which is the difficulty of walking into someone's dreams is set to a difficulty of eight plus the number of successes that the person whose dream you're walking into rolls on a willpower or a retay roll. I don't know why you would say willpower or a retay. Like there is no circumstance under which like a retay would be higher than willpower. It also indicates that a vulgar mind five spell would be difficulty eight as opposed to difficulty nine with a threshold of one. I couldn't quite follow a bunch of the prime stuff. It seems to indicate that storing prime, storing quintessence is prime two. Prime three will let you boost your stamina, I think, or drain it. Time three now lets you change time in a room, which is we never really actually get an area of effect time thing except for time four, creating a, a time bubble that stops time for a particular person or place. And then the greatest one of all, we find out that to ascend just requires spirit five and everyone else has been overcomplicating things. Good thing that is the sphere the Verbena are not great at. So that would explain why maybe the Verbena don't do great. <laughs> They're not really good with the one sphere you need to ascend. Again, it was flavorful the, at the cost though of the systems not necessarily making sense and us really not getting a lot of conjunctional effects that involve multiple spheres. I think that uh, just results in what comes out the other end is being a little bit uh, a little bit flat. Otherwise well-written, but not quite enough for me to uh, sink my teeth into. What did you think, Adam? Uh, chapter two was a, a, a thicker chapter. There was a lot going on there. Uh, page 33 makes clear the first two levels of spheres can be rendered as hedge magic. And although it was not spelled out in the book, which would have been helpful, I got the sense that the author was giving us a simple hedge magic rule system that we can use instead of getting one of the World of Darkness books that you know has you know sorcery, uh, linear magic in it. If a storyteller is new to the game, they don't want to pull in too much information at once, then instead of getting an, an extra book on sorcerers and hedge magic, they can just use this simple system where it's like, okay, I've got some NPCs, they can do some hedge magic. I'm not really focusing on this, but I'd like it to be a component of my game. So, okay, I take any given sphere, the first two levels can be done as hedge magic and just, you know, keep in mind that they, it should be a little weaker, you know, more successes equals, you know, less successes for true sphere magic. But uh, so it was, it was interesting to offer that, but looking at that, I think it requires the storyteller to give the awareness trait to a whole lot of non-mages. And you know, my approach to the World of Darkness setting is awareness is really for mummies and mages and, and a few special people, but I don't hand it out to every linear mage, you know, quote-unquote sorcerer in, in the old parlance, although sorcerers crusade every what using sphere magic can be called a sorcerer, so that term gets a little... A little complicated. So let's just say hedge magic users. Uh, hedge magic users, if all of them have awareness in order to do their thing, then that's too many people with the awareness trait for the way I approach the setting. Putting that aside for a moment, it recommends not letting hedge magic users do anything with the prime sphere, which kind of makes sense to me. I, I guess that kind of works, um, saying that, that manipulating you know, quintessence and prime and, and seeing it and being aware of it is really something only for, for true mages, for, for people using sphere magic. And 
I get that. I can run with that ball. But saying that hedge magic is only the first two levels of spheres and nothing more, this is keeping it quite simple. So this is for NPCs only. If you want your player characters to use hedge magic, then yeah, this is just too simple. Go go get an extra book with, with the full write-up on, on uh, hedge magic and, and mix that in. This chapter mixed a lot of lore and plot hooks into every description of the rotes. That makes for fun reading. It makes for engaging reading. You know, you know, I'm just being honest. When I'm sitting down and reading this chapter for the first time from beginning to end, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's some fun stuff. It's nice to read. And I, and I kind of like it. However, as a storyteller, I'm going to come back to this and refer when I'm prepping for a game or when I have to answer a question in a game. And for that, it's a headache. Every time you want to get uh, some some information on, okay, this roar, this wrote, an NPC is going to pull it on this player. Just give me the dope. Give me the inside scoop. And then you have to read through all this lore and plot hooks. And it's like, no, 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 just give me what I need. So it was not well thought out for people who are actually running the game and need to access their information. There's two approaches when you're talking about rotes. And Really, I think the short and sweet is what's going to make happy gamers in the long run. There were some nice examples of, of pagan foci, and that is w- the real strength of this chapter. If you pick up this book because you want information on how do pagans do magic that is different from other mages, turn to chapter two, read through the sphere descriptions, and even though I don't like covering, covering every sphere in order again, like we have so many times in Sorcerer's Crusade, I have to admit that the pagan foci in here are pretty good. They They have some tools to use. They have some rhymes to speak, uh, whether the players are trying it or NPCs are doing it. Either way, the rhymes can be difficult for people new to the game because to our modern sensibilities, we, we read through these you know, lines of, of rhyme and we think, okay, this is this is kitty stuff. This, this is kind of sing-songy, dopey. But from my point of view, I have been reading a number of books from the seven, written in the 1700s and 1800s in Europe. And it is clear that hundreds of years ago, the vast majority of people in Europe were uneducated. And so uh, rhymes were not kid stuff to them. It was it was part of their lives. And when you run across a fairy or a mage or a ghost who starts talking in rhymes, it's like what that says to the average European in the Renaissance era is, he's rehearsed this. He knows what he's doing. He's not just just trash talking me. He's laying a curse on me. Oh crap! I'm getting out of here. So it is very period appropriate if you can help your players kind of get over that initial hump of kitty stuff. The the rhymes in here can be used in your game and give you inspiration for how to write your own for stuff that is actually very appropriate to the period. Uh, on page forty, it is talking about the spirit sphere and it's saying, "Hey, let's let everybody use the paths of the wick with connection, which is correspondence sphere, at level one." Uh, it's saying, let's let uh, hedge wizards and every mage who knows connection one just use the paths of the wick. Let's just open the doors and let everybody come on in. And that does not work for me because in, in previous books for both Sorcerer's Crusade and Mage, the paths of the wick is supposed to be closely guarded secrets of the verbena. This is stuff that even new recruits in the verbena are not told about. It's like they, they got to trust you before they tell you about this stuff. And they're hard to use. It's It's a big risk. Uh, you don't just open the door and let anybody come in because a lot of people won't come out. I think here, you know, just opening it up to hedge wizards and everybody with connection one is treating this too lightly. So that rubbed me the wrong way. There are a number of examples of foolish mages who screw things up and use magic to to really hurt themselves. And it's interesting how every single one of these examples is a non-pagan 
No, no pagans ever screw up when they're using sphere magic. Page 53 states, most Rabena don't worry about the spirit sphere. Terry alluded this to this already. I think it's very strange that a large established group of mages, the Rabena, just don't worry about one of the nine spheres. I think that's... Uh, too big to swallow for me. That, that's going too far. Uh, let's see, uh, page 56, quote, the storyteller should decide if she will allow a master level character to perform this working as it is the closest thing to voluntary ascension that exists in the dark fantastic world, end quote. This is talking about Spirit 5. Basically, if, as, as Terry said, if you have Spirit 5, you can just walk into the Umbra and hey, isn't that ascension? <laughs> I mean, my, my thinking is, Says who? I haven't heard this before. This is some a very new thing to digest. This is a very big statement to make. It's written in character. So are we supposed to interpret this as, oh, this one oddball mage says this, but who listens to her? This is a very strange take on Ascension. I, I think they're trying to say that in the Renaissance, uh, not many people worried about Ascension. But I think even in the Renaissance, a, a lot of mages were worried about Ascension. So... Yeah, that was just really weird for me. I get the sense that many of the level four and five sphere effects intimidate the author. I get the feeling from reading chapter two that the author really wants us to stick to level three and below. Because above level three, it gets into sort of dicey territory. We get vague descriptions. We get a lot of cautions about, oh, be careful, be careful. And it's like, I'm comfortable with letting my players use level four and five sphere effects. But yeah, the author doesn't seem to be. So that, that was a little odd for me. Okay, enough out of me. Let's go on to chapter three. Chapter three is entitled Wisecraft and covers practice and implements for pagan magic. And we get a walkthrough of the pentagram and how it represents the elements and their unity of how it can be transformed into a, a pyramid connecting its points that fire represents the will water represents imagination secrecy is gained through air and faith comes from the earth the point spirit stands for achievement and release i found this useful we also get the a walkthrough of what each of the four elements is tied to and the direction that they are are tied to we don't get a direction for spirit and going through this it just really sometimes though made me think of exalted because we just got this repeated list of of five in a lot in a lot of cases so i was just waiting for them to indicate that like the they're like and the elemental pole of air is tied to the north we get the seven planetary powers, which lines up perfectly with the nine spheres. We get a bunch of information on what plants are tied to what planet. So Rue, Mandrake, Aconite, Hemlock, and Cumin are tied to Saturn. So I like to add apparently a healthy dose of Saturn to most of my chili recipes. That's good to know. We get the colors that are tied to each of the planets, their numerical correspondence, particular trees. I just like the idea that a pagan practitioner of tree magic is just going to be utterly boned outside of Europe as they're like, we could take this guy down. All we need is some uh, hickory or hemlock. And he just like looks around and just sees like baobab trees and is like, ah, Dink, I really should have brought more of my own wood. We get uh, scents and flavors and so on that, again, are tied to the various planets. We get uh, recurring symbols that are used for them. We then get a walkthrough of the traditional tools in verbena ritual magic or in pagan ritual magic that we have the idea the altar as the most important tool there are special ways of consecrating it and tying it to their will physically marking it with runes and symbols and other items to tie it to their particular magical practice and then it talks about how you should never bargain or haggle for an altar like is there like a Jim's house of altars out there? Like, I just kind of assumed they would make their own. Like, that's the thing where you'd be like, well, I need a big ass stone tied to the land. I should 
go out to Jim's house of altars and buy a stone rather than going through my dominion and letting the spirits guide me to the appropriate stone. Obviously, I was wrong because pagans aren't good with spirit, so they have to go to Jim's house of altars. I also like the fact that the gods would look down on anyone who bought their altar from Jim's house of altar during their annual President's Day sale. So... That's, that's good to know. We get information on, on wands and why they are so important, the importance of blades, and it goes through how different pagan traditions view each of these implements differently. And you need to conceal the buried blade and then leave it in the earth for 13 nights before digging it up and, that is, and then ritually cleaning it in spring water. The importance of cauldrons to different practices as well as how that differs from, from maybe a chalice. The pentacle that you want to get from the pentacle section of Jim's House of Altars. We get information on ritual vestments and then like their lack thereof. I feel like there should have been a section on like strategic nudity and you on capes and so on. The importance of of different symbols of wearing the uh, mien of the high priestess or the lord and lady. We then get recipes, which is kind of interesting, and their various uses. And then we get a detailed discussion on broomstick flight, which did an amazingly good job. I rode the fence on this section so hard my crotch hurt in terms of whether or not this was rich and meaty and flavorful and fun or just a wordy waste of my time. And again, I came down firmly on both sides. This chapter I thought was interesting and useful and was better than some earlier books where they're like, yeah, witches like sticks a lot. And then later sections where it's like, here are 173 things that you can find in a forest and their strategic uses in your chronicle and uh, again different people are going to like different things but i thought this section did a better job kind of 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 splitting that difference i don't know if i necessarily needed a bread recipe in the middle of it but eight cups fresh milled flour two spoonfuls of salt two spoonfuls of soda three to six cups buttermilk don't let it burn (laughs) i like that as the advice don't let it burn no one likes burnt bread Screw burnt offerings. Nothing I ever got from Jim's House of Altars is going to get burnt bread. And then we also get a recipe for like periwinkle tea and a love potion and so on. And like, I don't know, but like two pages on brooms, man. Two pages on brooms. And then just to remember what book it was in, it ends with an illustration stolen from RK Post at the age of nine, which shows a lady in her boobies. But in this case, it's tastefully covered by hair. So either it's a younger one or a later one where like a teacher yelling and goes, RK, stop drawing boobies. So yeah, kind of mixed feelings flavorful but uh, what did you think about the section adam uh it was it was more occult detail than i actually need but it was a nice introduction to symbols and concepts which i think it was kind of weak in earlier sources crusade books so it, it was nice to have there for people who are looking for that it, it, it nice to be able to find one place to find it the adherence to real world magical beliefs left me cold i think the verbena should have some secrets of their own that the sleepers don't know Again, a lot of Sorcerer's Crusade books really stick closely to real-world material. I just want to ask, where's the world tree? Seriously. Seriously. Where, where, where are the world trees? This is a glaring omission that was such a cool piece of Verbena lore that we were told in every mage book stretches back to the beginnings of, of time. And here we have a book that focuses on pagan practices. There's no world tree. It's just like, yeah, let's just ignore the world trees because why would we talk about that? I'll tell you why you talk about it because it's a really fascinating piece of verbena lore that you could totally do something cool with and you didn't. Okay, enough of that. I thought the recipes were 
unnecessary, uh, especially since some of the recipes don't even tell you why mages would make them. I mean, with some of the recipes, it's like mages make this when they want to do this one thing. It's like, okay. And other recipes are like, uh, here, you could bake some bread. Okay, let's move on. It's like, oh, hold on. Why why would a pagan bake this bread instead of the other bread? And what, what what's special about it after it's baked? Nothing. It's just a recipe. It's bread. Cool. Let's go on. It's like, ah, it's frustrating. It's like, if you're going to give me recipes, at least tell me why mages would bother to follow that recipe. Uh, the flying broom material at the end, I didn't ride the fence on that. I thought <sighs> it was a bad joke. I read through it. It's like, wow. It's like you've got a pagan who is taking this really pagan point of view through the whole book saying, yeah, we don't like the reason mages. We don't like the Romans and we don't like the Christians. And here it's like, hey, I've got this friend who's in the order of reason. You know, some of them are really cool. Let's see what she has to say. It's like, well, that's very, very unpagan. And so we read through this jokingly ultra detailed description of how to fly on a broom. And it's like, nah, I'm sorry. You just didn't stick the landing on this one. Just, it's not funny. I think at this point we transition over to our middle piece of fiction and the prelude fiction in this book is actually the first of three fiction pieces that tie together into one narrative. It describes the life of Jonathan, a pagan mage. Is he a member of the Rubina? The fiction doesn't say. Jonathan is the son of a wealthy family who was introduced to paganism quietly by the household staff. We first see his awakening in a pagan ritual when he's 17. He is surprised when his partner in the ritual, a 17-year-old girl, dies when he awakens from his awakening. In the same moment, he loses his sight. He becomes physically blind. His daemon speaking to him for the first time tells him not to worry about the girl or her grandmother who will soon die of grief. We pick up the narrative again in part two when he's a young adult and his parents press him into an arranged marriage. Still blind, Jonathan uses sensory magic to get by. He is demanding and uncaring towards his new wife. He is anxious to make the acquaintance of other mages and finally meets one who turns out to be an infernalist. Jonathan discovers how bad his new friend is when the friend takes a young girl who volunteered from Jonathan's coven and does terrible things to her before killing her in a infernalist ritual. Jonathan cuts the friendship, but the infernalist becomes an enemy who kills Jonathan's wife and puts Jonathan on trial for witchcraft with the sleepers. Jonathan escapes just before they burn him at the stake by using destructive magic that kills many innocent bystanders. This middle section was too graphic and disturbing for my taste. I, I didn't appreciate it. It goes into a lot of detail about the Infernalist ritual, and it was not my thing. Our third and final part of the fiction shows us Jonathan as an old man. He's learned to live a quiet, simple life and find the joy in everyday occurrences and local people. He's smitten with a female awakened student many years younger than himself, who he is training. He makes himself vulnerable, confesses his love, and becomes a young man again. His daemon returns sight to his eyes, and we get a happy ending. Did he use his own magic to make himself young, or did his daemon do it for him? This isn't clear in the fiction. Uh, like the intro fiction for Sorcerer's Crusade Companion, this depiction of daemons shows them concerned about their mage's moral character. So this fiction is about how Jonathan took a lifetime to learn humility and good character. As for my reaction, why did the teenage girl die when witnessing an awakening at the beginning of the fiction. I didn't know that sort of thing was lethal. Also, if the daemon is so concerned about moral character, why did it tell Jonathan not to sweat the girl dying? If my introduction to true magic caused people to die just from witnessing it, I would start asking myself if I was getting into the right kind of magic. I would start looking for other mentors or groups to be a part of. As for the ending, what would be the scourge for suddenly becoming 63 years younger, removing blindness, and knocking open a building all at once? I'm thinking it would be pretty high just saying. Most depictions of avatars in both Mage the Ascension and Sorcerer's Crusade have them concerned with their mage's knowledge and understanding increasing 
so they can approach ascension rather than moral character. Storytellers can choose which of these two approaches to daemons they prefer, but trying to mix them together could get confusing. I don't recommend it. I would choose to avoid the moral angle. The fiction accounts we've seen with moral daemons uh, showed us the same moral values for both the daemons and their mages. I don't think it would be easy to choose a set of moral values that your players would agree with completely. I think applying moral values to a player's daemon is kind of overstepping my bounds as a storyteller. But uh, Jerry, what did you think of the, the fiction and the, the moral daemons? So it's spread throughout. And there is this weird strain of morality that goes throughout Sorcerer's Crusade in the same way that daemons seem to be concerned about virtue, as so do the, the forces of the Scourge. It seems to suggest kind of a moral direction to it. And that, to me, really falls apart outside of Europe. Like, it would be super weird if we had this highly moralistic, in a particular way, daemon that was appearing to someone who was preaching certain types of Christian virtues seemingly in the Ottoman Empire. And I would have liked more information on kind of how that works, how the cultural specifics of it work, and so on. And it just, uh, one, this, I think, sometimes we talk about authors being paid by the word. I think in this case, the authors were being paid by the paragraph break, because I think during the interlude, every sentence is seemingly its own paragraph. There's just blank lines everywhere. In the introduction, in the prelude, it says, brighter than 10 moons. I was curious how bright 10 full moons would be. Comes out to being the equivalent of a 2.5 watt incandescent light bulb from a distance of one yard. That is so blinding, you may be able to find your keys under it. In the middle section, as Adam mentioned, it is graphic and graphic is okay if it is justified. I don't know if they were trying to indicate like, yes, this infernalist was bad, but then the rest of this book talks about how life is gory. So are we supposed to draw an equivalence to it? Is this just the nature of magic? I, I don't know. I referred to the bad guy in the interlude as infernalist von Titbiter because I don't know. It just keeps coming up. Boobies here and there. They talk about the mixture of blood and semen. From what I understand of the mage cannon source Hellraiser, that's how you summon Cenobites, so don't do that. We're reminded that the floor is very cold. Every time Jonathan uses, it says inner sight, I could only think of the, uh, the mock commercial where the person goes, look with your special eyes. And then in the epilogue, we have this like semi-non-consensual sex with someone below the age of majority. Like, like we go through just kind of every every sexual crime has committed in the fiction piece, and it's <laughs> it's like do we you congratulations you get the the hat trick of statutory regular rape and sexual violence. So and then at the end we get this special kind of statutory. So congratulations. I don't know if it's supposed to like shock my modern sensibilities or what, but like there was no buildup, there was no real payoff towards it. It kind of portrays pagans as being overly guided by their demons, which is fine to me, especially if you want to contrast that with the previous book, Order of Reason, where they talk about the demon as a thing to overcome, which if this is what your demon drives you to do, I like the Dedalians more. <laughs> so yeah, that was... Da, 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 da. fiction. <laughs> it was kind of interesting, though, that like 
the Sorcerer's Crusade line goes out on this bit of fiction where the characters kind of live happily ever after, after a 17-year-old girl professes her love or 16-year-old girl to someone in her 80s. It's just odd because you're like, oh, what's different about the world of mage is uh, girls above the age of 17 don't exist, apparently. That seems to be the critical thing that makes the world dark because once that happens, they either die or immediately turn into a crone or something. We don't, we, we, there's not a single middle-aged woman seemingly within the entirety of pagan practice. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my thought of thought, thought of fiction. Wee. Uh, well, chapter four. Yeah, <laughs> chapter four is entitled "Weavings," and we get character concepts for things that are uniquely and totally pagan and could never conceivably be anything else, such as the artisan magus. It gives absolutely no tie to pagan practice, except for the fact where it's like you saw the clouds and you saw their color. You liked wood as a child and you thought streams were pretty cool and you're like okay i kind of see what you're doing here but and then we get the wild child where it's like you don't believe in pants i'm like that that is evident from the all of this book we also get the the template of the heretical cleric who is a cleric that preaches to the old gods i would have loved a lot more information on this like just the idea that there is this syncretic old faith version of Christianity that is running around in certain areas of like, oh, that's the book Terry wants. We then get merits and flaws with wild affinity, which I will summarize as holy shit, you can see good and is the idea that you are attuned to a certain environment. And when you're truly immersed in it, you will have a minus three difficulty to something to tracking or hunting or stealth tied to that environment. And it stacks with acute senses so you could get a minus like 12 difficulty on certain things. Great. We get elemental affinity. You just can't botch if it involves the element of your choosing. So if you're like Mark the Fire Guy, you're going to be using fire for a lot of things because can't botch is uh, pretty great in a world where that is easily the fastest way to accumulate Scourge. We get another write-up of Berserker. We get Fairy Cursed, which is kind of the opposite of Fey-Blooded. And it's like, yep. You're boned, but not for the normal reasons, but for fairy reasons. And it also notes that every fairy curse should have an escape clause. And when it comes to creatures in the world of darkness, exceptionally skilled at finding and exploiting escape clauses, mages tend to be kind of up there. So <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, okay, four point flaw should really make your life pretty crappy unless you do this one weird trick, which you're going to do. So good luck with that. We then get uh, uh, death haunting as a flaw where it's like, no, this is completely different from Jor, except for the part where it kind of slips up and says Jor reflects the resonance of death magic. <laughs> While the death haunted flaw marks the mortal who has been cursed or tainted by other means. And you're like, oh, okay. Is this the, no, okay, they are different. And then it gives us another reminder of how it is different, call it, causing it a degenerative condition linked to scourge backlashes versus death haunted being a flaw that kind of comes eternally. We then get some knowledges craft lore okay and then pagan culture okay and then rituals rituals being very commonly used as part of the linear magics that are proposed tied to the spheres we also then get a new write-up for the familiar background which is uh, pretty pretty beastly so in addition to the normal uh scourge consumption you get them generally having a, a large amount of information that can add to knowledge rolls the ability to really pull you out of a jam if something really bad happens and just kind of a, a one-page write-up of how to kind of build that along with a tiny experience chart that has no formatting. 
we then get a bibliography of and and references to use and these seemed fine a bunch of them had a whole bunch of stars next to them intermittently and i wasn't sure if that was a formatting thing because it went back and forth between there being one and two stars yeah then we then we get some closing art and then the epilogue which we already discussed what did you think about chapter four datum I gotta say, overall, I I was rather disappointed. The pagan artist template uh, completely ignores centuries of Christian art in multiple forms, so that was was a claim that was very hard to back up. Most of these templates I got, I feel like I've seen these before in Sorcerer's Crusade books. I, I just don't think they added anything which is almost more damning because the thing in previous books adam and i have been like this section is a repeat but i feel like it is damning of the writing where adam and i are like this might be a repeat i don't remember sorry just needed to bust in with that one (laughs) where i was like oh no i forgot if this has been mentioned four times before i'm like oh wait that's not a bad thing for me. That's a bad thing for the book. Yeah, there, there are merits and flaws in here, and they didn't come across as terribly innovative or interesting. I, I just don't, even if I was running uh, pagan player characters, I just don't think I would worry about these. They have the death haunted in here, which really it just looks like a pagan take on Jor taint. They try to say, no, it, it's different for this, it's different for this. It's like, well, yeah, it's different because pagans see it differently from uh, you know, other sorts of mages from the East, so obviously, but... Um, you know, apart from the separate systems that they recommend for it, it really just looked like Jortaint again, but from a pagan perspective. The new skills they list here, there's so much overlap with additional skills from previous Sorcerer's Crusade books that I, I just don't think this adds anything. There's a new familiar background, which is very detailed and can get very powerful. For my experience as, as, as just a, a fan of role-playing games, is there are a number of players who really latch on to the concept of the animal buddy for my player character. I mean, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or Mage or, you know, whatever else, there are a lot of people who, who really want to run with that ball. So for those people, this is a, a detailed, focused system that lets them have a very powerful uh, familiar uh, to help out their player character in the game. But for most storytellers, I'm just going to tell you, if you want to use this new familiar background out of this book, you got to keep a firm handle on it because it can get really powerful and, and pretty complicated pretty quick. So if you're going to use it, keep an eye on it, and you might want to tone it down. But that was the only real innovative thing out of this chapter, unfortunately. I was, I was kind of expecting a little more, and I didn't really get it, uh, I'm afraid. But looking at uh, some general thoughts on the book as a whole, Terry, what, what uh, w- would you say about this book? Uh, this book had fine writing and was often flavorful. I don't have like a key quote that kind of brings it all together, but it just kind of felt hollow. Like it shows us that pagans are not to be trifled with, but it doesn't do a good explanation of telling me how they ultimately lose. Now, I understand that this is a historical setting and I can choose to have things play out differently, but to me, the dominance of the order of reason should come somewhere within the system and setting of the game. Is it just that the Dedalians outnumber them? Is it the fact that expert politicking allows the religious and the technological to play off each other? Is there something that happens where the old gods step away? I don't no. As I mentioned, the Sex and Blood felt gratuitous, and it could have been built up to if we had gotten a section that said, hey, this is why this stuff is so important. 
this is why we're going to bang on about it. But it just says like, ah, people being covered in blood and they're being boobies. Isn't it great to be alive? I'm like, that's an interesting QED to just jump from premise to conclusion on like we get discussions in other places about the idea of the sacred feminine and the importance of sex and the copulatory act as recapitulating the formation of the cosmos or something like that. And the book just doesn't do that work. It just kind of assumes and goes straight to it. There are some editing errors. We get a page XX here or there. The art is absolutely abysmal. Again, it looks like they invented a time machine and stole Richard Keen Ferguson's early middle school notebooks. It's kind of sad that there is no high res cover art that exists because at some point drive through RPG kind of downsampled all of the covers for these. And I'm not sure why we never get a system for the threefold rule or scourge to kind of make it interesting. So we get the idea that anything bad that a, uh, a pagan does with their magic will return to them threefold, but okay, give me, give me a system for that. There's no information on factions or magical groups or even mortal groups. Like most of the other books of this type did a quick survey of, oh, okay, you're running a swashbucklers campaign. This is what it's going to look like in Portugal. This is what it's going to look like in the Ottoman Empire. This is what it's going to look like in the HRE. This is what it's going to look like in the Italian city-states. We don't get that here. You now have to do all the lifting in terms of that setting and location stuff, which is interesting because the book simultaneously is just peppered with things that say, hey, on the outskirts of the French wilderness, this is what people do. But you need to know that when they're talking about Lombardy, where they're talking about. <laughs> we don't get any information really on the high north. Now, admittedly, during the, the Renaissance, that's much more lightly populated, but it just didn't have any of that. It really felt like the author had an idea of a concept and a milieu and just wanted to have you bathe in it, probably naked, probably with a little bit of blood, but without like kind of doing the work for maybe a more technical storyteller to be able to go along for the journey. It was to talk the way the kids are talking. This book was all about the vibes. And you know what? If if they're going to if it's all going to be about vibes, I need footnotes. But that's <laughs> that's me. The the bibliography, the book section was just a huge list and you get the idea that like these are just books the author liked. Also a lot of them are neo-pagan, like are distinctly modern practices. And I don't know how to draw those back. Like, are we supposed to say, hey, this is a a reconstruction or something like that? Or to, or to say, hey, we don't actually know what the actual practices were because they weren't written down or something like that. And then that contrasts with the contrivance of the entire book saying that this book is a grimoire. The idea of a pagan grimoire is kind of interesting. And I would have liked a little bit more information on that, it's it's a case where it's the last book of the line, and I was hoping it ended with a bang, but it kind of ends with a whimper. W what did you think overall about the book, Adam? I would have liked to see pagan-flavored Scourge, you know, for, to help storytellers out. It's like you've got pagan players; they're going to have Scourge. Here's pagan-style Scourge, you know, information that you can use in your game. It wasn't here. This book portrays pagan mages as, as bitter and angry. And I'm just asking, what if we don't want to portray pagan mages that way? What, what if we don't want to have them always talking about the people they hate? I think that's a question worth asking. Authors have very strong feelings about Christians and Christianity. It, it's so obvious, it's actually irritating. I, I can't tell if the book is about how great pagans are or how awful Christians are. Every page 
is devoted to both, even in the fiction. The Verbena dream speakers and Sahagia are all wise, skilled, and powerful. Hermetics, Gabrielites, choristers, etc. are stupid, awful people who constantly screw up. That was just hard to swallow. What are the Verbena doing during this period? What are their internal groups? Are they working against any other factions? What's up? This book just doesn't tell us. It's like almost like the Verbena aren't here. They're mentioned in passing a few times, and that's really it. There's no mention of the Council of Nine. I mean, how do pagan mages get along with other, you know, Council of Nine mages with the other traditions at this time, at least the ones in Europe? It it just doesn't tell us. The information is not there. I felt there was so much information left out, so many questions that a storyteller has when they buy a book, because really, the storytellers are buying the books more than the players are buying the books. And so giving the storytellers some useful bits in every book is, is a really good idea. And as a Sorcerer's Crusade storyteller, I don't feel like this book offers me all that much. I did like the the rhymes and the example of foci for pagans in chapter two. That, that was good. And in chapter three, it gave me kind of a brief overview of some, you might call it a paradigm or magic style information. You know, these directions, these correspondences. Okay, that that's pretty good. The book is not a wash, but there was just so much that I expected to find in here that as a storyteller, I need to find in here, and it's not here. This would have been a great book to cover. Okay, dream speakers, they say, are largely outside of Europe, but some of them have visited Europe. And of course, mages get around. You know, they've got sphere magic. They can certainly get around. So this would have been a great book to talk about them. How are they getting by in Europe? Are they making any waves? Are they drawing undue attention? Give me something. So I got to say, ultimately, after, you know, paying for and reading through this book and thinking, how am I going to use this as a Sorcerer Crusade storyteller? Gives me a little, but it doesn't give me a lot. That wraps up my thoughts on the book. Uh, Terry, there's got to be a couple of quotes that, that jumped off the pages uh, for this book. So I want to hear them. The closest one was the one that kept recurring in the fiction bits of, which I didn't realize that they were quoting contemporary sources, but the recurring one of don't stand, don't stand, don't stand so close to me. <laughs> of course, that is the song by Sting and the Police about a, a teacher having an inappropriate relationship with someone much younger than them. And that was kind of all that was running through my head while I was reading those interstitial uh, fiction bits. Uh, again, the writing is fine. Nothing really leapt out at me as an absolute banger. And some of the other ones were just lines that made me feel uncomfortable to read, which I have no desire to read on the podcast. So what are we reading next, Adam? <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say that the middle fiction piece, it's like the Infernalist is doing dark things. It's like, so they describe all the dark things. It's like, you could have just said dark things and I would have been fine. I, I, I would have been good with that, but that's me. But hey, next up, we are reading Mages, no, Mage Dark Ages, which is the second historical spinoff from Mage the Ascension. I have not read the book at this point. I got my copy, but... I got to say, this is going to be, this could be a hard sell for me because we already have a book about mages in the Dark Ages in the 1200s, and that is Ars Magica. Ars Magica is a great game, a lot of fun, and the rules are nice. And so it's like, I, I might have something of a prejudice coming into Mage Dark Ages. It's like, okay, you know, you, you're giving me another Middle Ages mage book. Sell me on this and, and I'll, I'll agree to it, but, uh, but we'll see. It does have a art by Quentin Hoover, and I will almost always buy a game book with art by Quentin Hoover. So he is good. I, I gotta say, I do like Quentin Hoover art. Yeah, I can remember some from some other RPG books he did in in the nineties. He's good. 
Neo Art Nouveau, taken too young. If you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. We would certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but honestly, you can just go to YouTube and search for Mage the Podcast, just like that. You're going to find us. We are also on Mastodon. The link is in the show notes. And I'm that, that is not an easy link, so you're going to have to look in the show notes for that one. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. We can't thank them enough. Carrie, can you share the names of them? I'd be glad to. Thank you to Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Benjamin Bendelow, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Joshua Hillerup, Oracle Neil Patterson, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle McCarroll, Oracle the Crew of Erebus, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad of the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Guy Conan Stewart, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, and Archmaster Patrick McNamara, as well as thank you to Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Anon, Bedurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Daniel Cubbin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Fragger Rock, George Lara, Eobold, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Bryn, John Magnuson, Julian Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H, Ryan Kendi, Stephen T- Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Martin, William Connolly, and Zach Rules. Thank you for your support. If you would like to become an exec- executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. And remember, if you're going to create a paradigm book to try and explicate a worldview that may or may not be popular in the region and is largely informed on contemporary misunderstandings of previous practices, before you do that, go back and steal some mediocre drawings by a young RK Post. Bye.